Good morning, church. My name is Paul Bowden, and I am on the guest services team, the speaking team, and I am honored to be your guest speaker today. Uh, Mike and Rhonda are in uh, a different state, like it was mentioned earlier, uh, performing or celebrating uh, a wedding, and I know they're having a great time, and we just pray for blessing on them and a time of refreshing as they travel and safe travels. Uh, so thank you to them for the, the opportunity here. I want to welcome the visitors and guests and those watching by video. And to them, I want to say, watch to the end. You never know, something big might happen. <laughs> or the one that always gets me, wait for it. And so I'm watching on my phone. I'm going, okay, I'm waiting. Nothing's happening. How long do I have to wait here? I don't like to wait. <clears throat> but I also want to say uh, happy Father's Day to the fathers and let you know how important you are, and I think uh, we know this, we, we know this innately and we feel the weight, um, but you're so important that just about every negative statistic in the home with the father um, doesn't even happen. Things like emotional, behavioral problems, injury, abuse, poor performance at school, going to jail, substance abuse, things like that are almost non-existent because there's a father in the home. So I want to say to you, good job. Uh, the Bible app uh, verse for the day was for fathers or is for fathers, and it's Malachi 4, 6. I'll read it quickly. It says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And it's really a, a repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness type of, of verse, and uh, just fits perfect with the, the message today. And um, also, what a flow we have going for the reverence of God and being right with him. I just love it. Uh, he's definitely working through us and in us right now. So fathers, I have uh, just a, a note in my Bible that I wrote, and it was, I don't even remember writing it, but I wrote, Dad is destiny. And I think the reason is because, dads, we are our kids' first view of God the Father, like it or not. They look at us when they're really little, tiny, and they see that must be what God is like, you know, because we represent him to them. And so that's how important our job is. And when we lovingly instruct, lead, discipline, uh, love them, it shapes the way they see Father God. So, and you guys are here, you're doing it. There's so many more statistics I could share, like... Uh, when, when a father makes a commitment to Christ and starts coming to a local church, 93% of the time, his kids and family follow him. So you're here, you're doing it. Thank you. Good job. Keep up the fight. It's not always easy, right? <laughs> but you're doing it. So good work. And my dad is here also. Um, I just want to say, dad, you've always been like a father to me. <laughs> Thank you. So happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in here. And let's pray and ask God's blessing on the rest of the service. Father, we just, uh, we pause right now and we recognize you as our Heavenly Father. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the love that you have for us, the love that you give us, and the plan that you have. We just uh, are so appreciative. We're so grateful. And we're so glad to be your children because you love us so well. And we ask that you would continue to, um, to bless us here with your presence in this service. Speak to hearts, meet needs, Lord, and convict as you see fit, and just lead us and guide us as only you can do. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we will uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter 1.13. And as you're doing that, uh, this message, it's titled, the, uh, I'm sorry, God's Plan for Salvation, or the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a look at what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. And really my goal is, if you're saved here and you're born again, you know your future, you're, you're going to spend eternity with God in the kingdom, then what I hope to do is <clears throat> bring Jesus out of these pages, even in the Old Testament. You know, he was concealed in the Old Testament, but everything points to him. Uh, there are so many types and shadows 
and pictures of him in the Old Testament. And then I want to bring him out of the New Testament as well in the gospel. And there, here's the reason for it. So verse 13 starts with a therefore. And the old saying is, whenever you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. So we need to look a little bit more at the context. And if we just jump up to verse 10, Peter says, of this salvation... So we know he's talking about salvation. The prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, them is the prophets, It was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This is an interesting statement. Things which angels desire to look into. So he says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That doesn't mean much to our culture, but they used to wear, in this culture, in this time, flowing robes, right? Long robes. And when they rested or reclined to eat, uh, they would let them down. But when they moved, they, they would have to bunch them up and secure them around their waist, or he says, the loins. Uh, so, that's what he's saying there. And he also says, uh, be sober, And the next verse says, as obedient children. So he's talking to us about salvation, many things. Uh, Girding up the loins of our mind. Also, the mind is where our intellect is. We don't just check our intellect at the door, right? Um, God speaks to us through our intellect and his word. Um, And so it's also action. We're girding them up for action. So it's both an intellectual understanding and action and holy living. And what I want us to see is, I think the main, the main theme in this verse is to rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So, can we look for Jesus in the Word today, no matter where we are, if it's the Old Testament, uh, New Testament, and Joey, I love the, the verses that you read. Thank you so much. That was, that was so needed, and praise God for it. Um, so we're going to look at God's plan of salvation that he had before creation. And we're going to look at it from a kind of a 40,000 foot view. We're going to look at it from kind of up high. Uh, and it's going to be on kind of a timeline is how I look at it. Uh, and it's God's plan of salvation. We'll dive down to ground zero a couple times, which a lot of times is our hearts, right? So, I'll just make this statement to open. In order for us to have any chance to understand God's plan of salvation, we need to realize that there is more than just what we see out there, right? There's more than just what we see, hear, feel, taste, smell. Sometimes I forget one. Um, But the universe and everything we see was created by what we don't see. The spiritual realm created the physical realm. So we need to understand that uh, before we go any further on God's plan of salvation. Uh, About a year and a half ago, uh, I put a whiteboard up in my office at work. It's about five feet long by three feet high, and I just think better. I'm I'm visual. I'm a visual learner. I like to write stuff. I like to move stuff around and see how it, it shapes or gets shaped in my mind. And I like to put reminders on there, lists of things, and... I would only do this on breaks, of course. On my break, I would jump up and, and write stuff down that I'm learning or, or that I need to know. And pretty soon, after a couple months, the way things uh, kind of formed on there is I had a timeline. And I didn't even know I was putting that together or God was showing me that. And the timeline started over here with eternity past, right? When God just was. He is so complete, needing nothing, lacking nothing, He is complete in himself. I don't know much about that period, but I know it was before creation, right? 
Then there was creation on the timeline. Then uh, uh, the first sin, the fall of man. And then God's first covering of that sin. And that is, uh, I mean, that's obviously a, a pointing to Jesus and what he was going to provide for us as our sacrifice. And then there was the law and all the sacrifices of the law, all of the uh, feasts, all the rules, and all of them also pointed to Jesus. You see God making a pattern here? He's pointing us in his salvation process to Jesus. And next was Jesus coming and everything that he did in the fulfillment of the law and all those sacrifices and feasts. And he died, was resurrected, resurrected after his burial. And I thought too, what, you know, I wrote down, Jesus died on the cross. And I thought, that's so easy to say, Jesus died on the cross. And we say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for me. And we kind of throw it around like that. And I thought, I'd, I'd really like to know more about that. So I, I paused there for a while. But then we have uh, the church age that we're in now. Um, so I'm, I'm acting this out. I hope you can see that. Uh, and we've been here for 2,000 years in the church age. It's also called the age of grace. And so in the future, we know with, by Bible prophecy that there's going to be a rapture, there's going to be a tribulation period of seven years, and then Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a 1,000-year millennial reign. That will take 1,000 years. And then uh, the word in 1 Corinthians 15 actually says that Jesus will turn the kingdom over to the Father. And I thought, that is a funny concept. What does that mean? And he does that because at that time, God's plan of salvation will be complete. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, and it was. The payment was, payment was made, it's finished. But it plays out now to the point when there are, uh, everybody will be judged, right? We will either be judged to go with God through eternity future, or we will be separated from him. It's one or the other. We have that option. Um, and then the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem comes down, and then the kingdom goes into eternity future. So I thought, I want to study, I want to study God's plan of salvation from the first covering of sin until he turns the kingdom over to God the Father, and then we go into the uh, eternity future. So that was a long, a long uh, introduction, but uh, one, of the, one of my coworkers came into my office and he saw that timeline. And we got talking about it and I was sharing the gospel with him. And pretty soon he said to me, now, you mean this metaphorically, right? And I kind of sat back and I said, well, I, I believe that the Bible is very literal in talking about all of this. And I believe sin came into the world. It gave us a sin nature. We sin." Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin, and we have an option. We can receive his gift, or we can choose to pay it ourselves and be separated from him for eternity. So I saw a, a somewhat befuddled look on his face, and uh, I tried to save the conversation. He ended up going back to work, back to his, uh, his office, and I started to beat myself up because I thought, Lord, how did this go sideways so quickly? How did I, how did I lose in this deal? Uh, is it possible that I actually helped this guy go backwards in the gospel? And I just beaten myself up. And then suddenly I realized, you know, that for any natural mind, any spiritual concept is not going to make any sense. If, you, if we can't realize that there is a spiritual realm that is more real than what we see, we just, it'll, we'll miss it because we're in the dark. So we have to realize that. Um, and then 1 Corinthians 1.18 came to mind. It's that for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So we just have to realize that we're, in, we're dead, Paul said in Ephesians 2.1, without Jesus. And uh, we're in the dark as well. We're dead in trespasses and sin, and we're in the dark. But his word is a lamp unto our feet. Amen? Without that, we're dead and in the dark, and we can't even see that there's more to what's around us than what our senses can detect. So 
uh, so if, if we go right to creation, uh, Genesis 1.1, page one in your Bible, is going to be the most attacked concept out there by culture and the enemy. And the reason is, if they can attack, uh, if they can attack creation, they can, they can say there's no God. And if they say there's no God, they can live however we want. And if we live however we want, there's no God, there's no judgment, I don't need a savior. So that's why that's such an attacked concept out there right now. But obviously, we don't get something out of nothing, right? If, if there was nothing, nothing doesn't coalesce and then explode into something. So that's, that's why I personally know that God was there. Because what's the first law of inertia? An object at rest tends to stay at rest unless acted on by what? An outside force. God said, light be, and it was. And that's how creation happened. And we shouldn't let anybody uh, play philosophical games with us on that at all. The Apostle Paul tells us that everyone will be held to account because God can clearly be seen in creation. He said in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. We can even see the Godhead in creation. So that they, people, are without excuse. So that's point number one in realizing our need for a Savior. Can we just agree that there is more than what we see or more than what our senses can sense? So when he created Adam and Eve, I believe he created them for fellowship, right? I think he fellowshiped with them uh, in, the, in the cool of the day, Genesis 3 says, which may have been their culture or, or their, their custom. That might have been a thing for them, a daily time of fellowship. Uh, and it says that they walked and talked with God. Uh, God must have fellowshiped with Adam uh, as he brought all the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals and Adam named them, that must have taken quite a while. I would have think they would have had a good time with the names that Adam came up with. Uh, and then Genesis 1, 28, and, I'm sorry, 28 and 20, 27 and 28, he said, let us make man in our own image. God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness, and verse 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the very fact that he created them in his own image, I believe, is proof that he wanted to fellowship. He wanted a relationship. So he wanted to show his power, his wisdom, his, um, just his might and his plan and his love through their daily walking. Then the fall happened, right? The first sin, I think we, we know a lot about this. Sin entered the world. They knew the command. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And that was the first sin when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that did was it brought in many things. And sin is, is it's pretty simple. I mean, I think a lot of times we know when we sin, but it's just missing the mark. It's, uh, I think, an archery term, I'm told. And the mark would be the bullseye. Bullseye representing perfection, uh, holiness, and uh, nothing, nothing lacking, nothing missing. It's perfect. And the Lord says to his people at least a half a dozen times in the word to be holy as I am holy. So that's his expectation. But with sin came decay, disease, disorder, chaos, and ultimately death, which is spiritual separation from God. That's sin left mankind in that situation. And we're all mankind. So it not only affected man, for the rest of history, but it affected the earth as well. It turned over the authority that God gave to man, to Satan, our enemy, making him 
the God, small g, of this world to this day. And we're still reaping the consequences of the fall to a huge extent. Um, and a lot of times we just accept it as normal, unfortunately. But the rest of the curse that God pronounced on the man and the woman is a sin nature. So we all have it. It's what makes us sin. Paul calls us slave to sin without Jesus. And it's like, have you ever seen a dog throw up and they go away? And not a couple minutes later, they're back and they eat their own vomit. <laughs> it's gross, but that, it's, a, it's a pull somehow. It's a magnet. And sin is like that for us. We can't break away on our own. It's impossible. It's pretty gross. And Paul says this, it goes this deep. He says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, there is no one righteous. No, not one. He says that about our hearts. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's us. That's our condition. That's our fallen condition before Jesus. So the sinner needs to know that the, the result of sin and why, that's why we need a Savior. So point two is realizing our need for a Savior uh, we need to know that we are a sinner. So that first covering for sin, we see that in Genesis 3.21, it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And in sacrificing an animal for the sins of Adam and Eve, God established a pattern of what was to come for the justification of many by Jesus. Uh, death was the consequence of sin. Blood had to be shed. And we'll learn later that uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. A life had to be given. Adam and Eve deserved death, but God substituted an animal to cover for their sin. So do we see how that is uh, a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross for us? The three things we need to learn about or know about here is that one, what caused the fall? It was the sin of disobedience. The curse is a result of sin, and the consequence, number three, which is the sin nature and death, the spiritual separation from God our Father. That was broken. All right, so it's getting good now. Uh, the law and the sacrifices. As we begin to see, the Old Testament contains Jesus concealed, and the New Testament is Jesus revealed. Moses received over 600 laws, that the, uh, that the Israelites, the Is Israelite people had to uh, fulfill and commandments from God in approximately 1400 BC. So for 1400 years, the Jewish people had to practice these feasts, these rules, these laws, uh, these sacrifices. Why? So that when their Messiah came, they would recognize him because they could look down the timeline 1,400 years and see all of the things that pointed to him. Is that me? We good? Okay. So here's the key for us, uh, because some of this sounds very cerebral, very intellectual and uh, stuff like that, but is there something that we could look down? You know, we're, we're fast-forwarded 2,000 years. Can we look down the timeline of all of the church history, all of the law, sacrifices, and feasts, what he did for Adam and Eve? And is there something that we're missing? Is there something that we can learn, that we can apply to everyday life, that the Holy Spirit can use to help us in our everyday life? The accounts of the Old Testament make it extremely clear that God does not deal with sin lightly. It's a serious matter requiring careful attention, and it causes death. So the law has a multitude of rules surrounding the five main types of sacrifices. I'll uh, only touch on two, uh, but all five are the burnt offering, the meal offering, trespass offering, the sin offering we'll talk about, and the peace offering. So here's what happened or what had to take place in the sin offering. And I'd like you to look at how many parallels that you can recognize between the sin offering and what Jesus did. Also, please see Jesus in these sacrifices 
And the other thing I thought would be fun was let's, let's see ourselves as the sinner in these situations, okay? Now, these are found in the first few chapters of Leviticus. And Leviticus 3, 1 and 2 says, when his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers it, to the, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish to the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. It's pretty gruesome. He couldn't step back a few paces and pull the trigger. He had to, you know, cut its throat and there was a lot of blood. So that's a picture of what our sin will do. Um, it was for repentance. And this was an animal offering, a life for a life, for a specific sin that was committed. And it was ceremonially to take on our sin and be sacrificed for it. So it was offered for a specific sin that he was guilty of. When he realized it, he brought a substitutionary offering, a life substitution for their life. It was to be a sacrifice without spot or blemish. The priest had to examine the sacrifice to determine that it was perfect. The person laid his hand on the animal's head and confessed that that he had sinned in that thing, and it symbolized two things. It symbolized when they put their hand on the head that the sin was actually transferred from us to the sacrifice, and the righteousness or the right standing was, sac- uh, was transferred to us. So that's very important. Um, then the peace offering. Of those five offerings, there had to be one of the first four, and then the peace offering. Uh, The purpose of this offering was to restore peace with God. And this was an offering that was always made after one of the other offerings. And because sin severed the sinner's fellowship with God, this was to restore fellowship and peace with him only after one of the other sacrifices. It was also to express gratitude and joy. It was to be a lamb. It's also called the lamb offering. And it needed to be without spot or blemish again. The peace offering was the only sacrifice that the worshipers were allowed to eat. Uh, And that went back to uh, the first Passover because uh, they were to go on a long trip after that, right? So they had to eat, so they had enough energy for that. But the reason that they can celebrate is because the offerer now is reconciled to God. That's an awesome word. Reconciled or at peace with him and their fellowship was restored. That's a reason to celebrate. Therefore, because of that exchange, the person exchanged the sin for uh, perfection from the sacrifice, and the person gets to go free. Now their sin is covered. In the Old Testament, those sacrifices could only cover sin. The one exception was the Passover offering had the peace offering only because they were in a hurry to leave and they had to be done by the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon. And the priest then would announce, it is finished, when they were done with the Passover, the peace offering on Passover. And one of the parallels then, of course, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, is Jesus was sacrificed on Passover. He was the only sacrifice that day, and he said, it is finished when the debt was paid. So this is a shadow, a picture of the sacrifice that Jesus would do for us And it's something that uh, the priests had to do continually. Um, In Leviticus 3.17, God told Moses, this shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generation and in all of your dwellings. So the the priests had to do it continually. And uh, they didn't always do it well. Uh, Sometimes the, the temple was destroyed, but the guilt for sin remained. And the law, righteous requirement of the law remained, and they knew what God expected. He expected strict adherence to the law. So the Old Testament covered sin. Now we get to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And I'll start with when John saw Jesus on the other side of the Jordan, he said something, but I want to I read it like, like we typically read it. But he didn't say it this way. We typically hear John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? He didn't say it like that. 
uh, John had hundreds at least of followers, at least hundreds of followers, maybe thousands. And they were usually around him. I'm sure when he saw Jesus from afar off, he said, behold, which means, hey, everybody, stop what you're doing and take a look, right? He said, behold, the Lamb of God, which should have triggered in their mind a peace offering. We've been sacrificing lambs in the peace offering for 1,400 years. And then he said, who takes away the sin of the world. That could have been a little confusing because, remember, their sin could only be covered. So takes away means exactly that. It means to lift up and actually carry off. And I like what Thayer's Greek lexicon says. It's like drawing up a fish, taking a fish out of the water and taking it home. So if that fish represents our sin, that's what Jesus does. He, he uh, took our sin off of us and carried it away, and he paid for it. Amen. So I'm just wondering if of those hundreds or thousands of people that heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I wonder if, see, that was right before Jesus' ministry. I wonder if they followed Jesus for the next three years and uh, listened to him and watched him get crucified, uh, buried, and raised from the dead. And I wonder if they were among the 3,000 who heard the good news on that first day that the church was, saved, or that the church was started. And I, I have to think they were. I have to think they were paying attention. And uh, so it's, I just think that's great. Um, the differences between what Jesus' sacrifice did and the Old Testament are, here's a couple. And I want to go to Elijah's sacrifice when he challenged the 450 prophets of Baal. He put, the word says, a sacrifice on an altar of wood. Uh, And the wood was on top of 12 stones, all representing each tribe of Israel. And then uh, they dug a trench around it. And he said, pour a barrel of water on it. Pour another barrel of water on it pour another barrel of water on it. That's three to the point where everything was uh, saturated. The sacrifice was saturated. The wood was saturated. The rocks were saturated. There was water in the trench. And then at the right time, the fire of the wrath of God came down and consumed the sacrifice, consumed the wood. It even consumed the stones. It licked up all the water. And it says that it even consumed the dust after that. So, God's wrath was more than what the sacrifice could pay for. Um, The sacrifice wasn't enough to quench God's wrath. The judgment was greater. And Jesus, we'll see, took all of God's wrath and satisfied it legally 100%. Amen. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice is permanent. The Old Testament sacrifices were only good to cover sin. Uh, Hebrews 10.11 says that every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But the next verse says, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. The reason he sat down is because it was over. The debt was paid. It, It was finished. So what happened on the cross? This is the second best. uh, We're doing good on time. This is the second best part of the whole message. Um, And I'm continually blown away. Whenever I think of this, whenever I read about it, whenever I study it, it is so absolutely awful. It's it's really hard to believe. And our, our natural minds can't do it. It's awful, but it's awesome at the same time. And I really wish we could see, I wish we could get a picture of what happened in the spirit at that at that time. Um, I picture Jesus hanging there, scourged, bloody, unrecognizable, beard plucked out, uh, the crown of thorns thrust into his head, making the blood run down his face and into his eyes, and the daylight darkening, storm brewing, hanging on the cross, struggling to breathe. Did you know that uh, it's pretty egg... um, There was a lot of agony involved, is what I'm trying to say, hanging on the cross. 
Like if you even hang your, put your hands out there like this for five minutes, it starts to hurt. Imagine the nails through your hands, the nails through your feet, and hanging there in, in uh, broad daylight in the sun. Uh, the, the way that crucifixion works is that you die from suffocation because your body can't breathe like this with all that weight hanging. So they had to pull themselves up with their arms and push themselves up with their feet and get a breath and then rest and then try to get another breath and then rest. And if it took too long, and sometimes it could take a day or more, if the death took too long, uh, the soldiers would break their legs. And so they couldn't push up and get a breath. And so they ultimately suffocated. Now, they didn't do that with Jesus because they could tell that he was already dead, and that is uh, a Bible prophecy coming true. So he was beaten, scourged, ridiculed, mocked, bloodied, hung on a cross, and yet he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus addressed the Father uh, three times, from what I can tell, when he was hanging on the cross. That was the first time he said, Father, which is uh, an intimate um, address. It's an intimate name. It, it uh, denotes someone who is family right there with you. And here's, here's what I imagine happened. Jesus was made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you see that sin exchange. God actually made him sin. He was sin for us. So here's what I believe we don't see in the natural. God took our sin and placed it on him. I believe he thrust it on him, the sin that we deserved, and he judged him as we deserve to be judged. Right? He put our shame, our guilt, our sin, the destruction, the condemnation, and he took it all, hanging there either naked or nearly naked, in shame that we deserved. And he became the curse for us in our place. He put sickness on him, death. And just as the fire representing God's wrath came down on Elijah's uh, sacrifice, I believe in the Spirit, that's what happened to Jesus. All of that came down, and the weight of it, um, he bore it all. He hung there and paid for our sin. And then God turned his back on him. Why did he do that? Because God can't, God can't associate with sin. So he turned his back on his own son. And that's when Jesus said, my God, my God, no longer intimate father. It's my God, which denotes someone far off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question is good news for us. He turned his back on Jesus. He forsook Jesus and the sin on him so that he would never have to forsake us. And he made us a promise. The promise is in Hebrews 13:5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That has already been done. Jesus absorbed all the wrath, all the judgment, all the curse, and pronounced, finished. The debt for sin is paid paid in full. Then he addresses the Lord again, and this time he says, Father, because everything was paid. Now our, uh, our fellowship is restored. We're reconciled. We have the opportunity, I should say, to be reconciled with God because of what Jesus did. So he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and commit is a verb. I thought that was odd that he used that word, but it shows that Jesus had a level of control. He was still in control. It's a funny thing for a man hanging on a cross to say, I commit my spirit into your hands. But the word means to place. I place my spirit or I entrust my spirit with you. It, it's very similar to I'm making a deposit. I'm making a deposit. I want you to watch over it and take care of it because I'm going to come back for it is, is the, the sentiment. So, and I found John 10, 11, where Jesus himself said, I lay down my life for my sheep. He said, no one takes it from me. 
No one killed Jesus. He laid down his life for us. He said, I give my life willingly. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it back up again. I love that. And then, still in control, he bowed his head. His head didn't fall forward. He bowed his head and he dismissed his spirit. Again, in control until the last. When I think of dismiss, I think of a company commander with a company at attention. And the company commander has their attention and they will stand at attention as long as needed. And as soon as they say dismissed, then they leave. So that's the control that he had. So here's the result, and we're almost done. The result is the peace offering restored fellowship with us and the Father. He reconciled us to the Father and restored our fellowship with him. And Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins, and now we, uh, we are made alive. We have freedom, freedom from sin, freedom to serve God. We're, we have freedom. We, we're not going to uh, be drawn back, right, to that sin. You get the picture. Um, God, or Jesus broke that for us. And one of the things that I think is the coolest representation of what God wanted to communicate was uh, in the temple, um, if you can picture the, the temple in Jerusalem, it's very big, has outer courts and inner courts, and the farther you go interior, the more holy the, the rooms are. And in the middle is the holy place, and that has all of the Old Testament elements like table of showbread, the uh, incense stand, the menorah, uh, I believe the brazen altar is in there. And then there's a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And that veil is very heavy, very big. It hung from the ceiling to the floor, and it was about three and a half or four inches wide, very heavy. No one can just, you can't just take it and tear it. But when Jesus died, God reached down, I believe, grabbed that veil and tore it in two from top to bottom, signifying that we don't need any earthly priest anymore to go in and beg for forgiveness and to sprinkle uh, blood on the mercy seat and to, to pray to God not to kill him and us. Uh, and God wanted us to have access to the Holy of Holies. Isn't that awesome? Even better, this, is, I believe, is what the angels desired to look into because now the Holy Spirit has uh, a clean vessel to indwell. So I can only imagine that those angels were, were thinking, how in the world is this going to happen, right? When the uh, prophecies and the prophets were talking about it. How is this going to happen? You're telling me that the, a holy God, a perfect God, is going to indwell an imperfect human? Well, this is how. Jesus gave us the opportunity to be cleansed 100% so that even uh, our hearts can be the holy of holies and we can be the temple of the Holy Spirit now. Amen. So Romans 5.8 says, Therefore, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man, Jesus... His righteous act and free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. Amen. So, fast forward 2,000 years. We've been in the church age now for that long. And what do we do with all of this information? What do we do knowing what happened to Jesus and knowing the opportunity that we have? Well, if you're saved, we tell people. We tell them how we, we became saved and born again by the blood of the Lamb. We share the word of God, right? We, uh, we're confident in the doctrine of salvation. We can be confident in his word. We share the word of our testimony and what Jesus has done in our lives. That's how we overcome culture and we overcome the enemy. It's by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, amen? So if you question whether you've been reconciled with the Father and you wonder where you'll spend eternity, whether with him in the life to come or separated, Scripture said we should examine ourselves 
as to whether we are in the faith. So how do we get there? How do we receive it by faith? I used to struggle with this a little bit because uh, it's, it's a completely spiritual concept, right? So I used to tell people, uh, well, it's like receiving a birthday gift. Um, you know, you just you put your hand out, you grab it, and you say, thank you. Or if I were to, if I were to want to give you this $100 bill, what would you have to do to make it yours? And the answer is I would have to take it. And yeah, saying thank you would be nice. But how do we do that in faith for something that we can't see? So I started thinking about it this way. <clears throat> and it's, we all start out in our sin, blind to, uh, because of our sin, in darkness, not seeing anything outside of what we know and can see and can sense. And we're busy doing whatever we're doing, which is typically self-serving, and it's missing the mark. And it's, it could be some of that you know, vomit that we always go back to or, or whatever. But we're busy doing our own thing. And during us being busy doing our own thing, we hear that Jesus died on the cross. God said in Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, while we were in our own slop, he died for us. And he offers us this gift. Again, Romans 5.18, through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. The only problem is not all men receive it. Amen? This is a very, very important step. So I picture us in our sin, doing our thing. Jesus died for, on the cross for us and is standing right behind us, offering us this gift. And we hear about it. That's why we have to tell people, Listen, Jesus died for you and he offers you a free gift. So what they have to do, what we each have to do to accept that gift is called repentance. And repentance is kind of a spiritual word too, but it simply means to turn. It means to turn from your sin to Jesus and then move in his direction, away from your old life. So... Unfortunately, a lot of the gospel messages in the last few years, I'm guilty of it. Uh, a lot of mine have sounded this way. Hey, dude, you know, it's really not working. You need Jesus in your life. Why don't you accept his free gift and he'll fix all that for you? Oh, all right. Or, hey, um, you need Jesus in your life, so he'll take you to heaven when you die. Not untrue, but that's not the big picture. Or, hey, businessman, you need to put Jesus in, in, the, in your business so you could be successful. Again, not untrue, but that's not the big picture. So what we need to do is realize what he has done for us, turn from our sin, turn toward him, begin to move in his direction, and see uh, all that he has done, all, that he is, all the negative that he is keeping from us and see him face to face, and re we should feel some sorrow for what we have done against him, right? And when we can see what he's done, that godly sorrow should take effect, and we can see what he's kept us from, what he has for us in the future, the awesome life that he's calling us to, and it should almost bring us to our knees and go, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry You've been calling my name for so long, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't even turned to see what you've done for me. I'm so sorry. And then conviction and, um, um, let me look at my notes. Oh, confession. Yes. I'm so sorry. Confession, that, that godly sorrow leads us to the confession of, I know I haven't been doing the right thing. I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for saving me. And then it's through that saving faith by, um, by the confession and by uh, that godly sorrow, we can then reach out with our faith and take that free gift and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And we can see him like that Roman soldier saw him on the cross and say, surely he is the son of God. 
Amen. Well, we are told to count the cost. And could I have the worship team come up, please? We don't just grab the free gift and say, hey, thanks, I'll see you in 60 years. I'm I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. He says to count the cost. He says to bear his cross. We are to die to ourselves daily and forsake all that we have, or at least be willing to. Matthew 13 has two of the shortest parables in the Bible. One is only one verse long, and they're the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, and both parables are about discovering something so valuable that we're willing to sell everything that we have, which isn't worth anything anyway, and buy the only thing that has value in in the entire world. So we are to count the cost. We are to die to ourselves daily, forsake all that we have. But here's his offer to us. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And that heavy laden is the weight of our sin. It has a weight. He says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he makes us a promise. In John 10.10, he said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. That's a promise. This life is not abundant. The life that he offers is abundant. Another version says that they may have life to the full. That's the offer that he makes to us. So if that's you, if you're not sure uh, where you're going to spend eternity, uh, we want to pray with you. And if I could have everybody stand, please, as we close. And this can be done online or if you're watching the video too. And we'll just pray a prayer. Uh, It's not a golden ticket but it's your heart expressing what you feel and your desire to have the life that Jesus is offering. So we'll all pray with you. And you're not joining this church, but you are joining the family of God. And we want to help you after that. So let's bow our heads and just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. I thank you for dying on the cross for me and paying the price of my sin. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Please take control of the throne of my life. Live your life through me. Make me the kind of person that you want me to be. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.